Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you for joining me today for the first episode where the actual crime takes place outside the UK, although all the background begins in the northwest of England. But before we begin, a huge thank you to all my Patreon supporters, but especially my new supporters this week. That's Samantha Roberts and Kate Darley. Thank you both so much and I hope you enjoy the 15 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Today we head back to Christmas 2006, so let's set some context by taking a look at what we were listening to at the time. Well, except for Slade, Wham and the other Christmas classics that are playing all over the UK every Christmas. And top of the Christmas songs re-entering the charts at Christmas this year was Fairy Tale of New York by the excellent Pogues and the sadly missed Kirsten McColl at number six. But number one spot was Leona Lewis with A Moment Like This, which kept Take That With Patience from the top spot. In the US, number one was Beyonce with Irreplaceable, and in the Australian singles charts, the top-selling song of 2006 was Sandy Tom with I Wish I Was a Punk Rocker. And what was happening in the news, I hear you ask? Well, pitching legend Greg Maddox signed a one-year deal with San Diego for a cool $10 million. Nice work, Greg. Peugeot produced its last car at the Wrighton plant, signalling the end of mass car production in Coventry, which was formerly a major centre of the British motor industry. The Chinese river dolphin was confirmed as extinct. When will we learn? And NASA revealed photographs taken by the Mars Global Surveyor, suggesting the presence of liquid water on Mars. Today's story begins in Accrington, a town in Lancashire, northwest England. Situated around 20 miles north of Manchester city centre, the town has a population of about 35,000 people. It's famed for manufacturing the hardest and densest building bricks in the world, which were used in the construction of the Empire State Building and for the foundations of Blackpool Tower. As well as this, it's famous for Accrington Stanley Football Club, which folded in 1965, but they are now back in the Football League and doing well. So who do we know who grew up here? Accrington was home to cricket legend David Bumble Lloyd. I love that guy. At the other end of the scale for me, it was also the place that dreary and preachy author Jeanette Winterson grew up. And she oh, dully wrote about her upbringing in Accrington in her book, Oranges Are Not The Only Fruit. Not a book I would recommend if it was the last one on the planet. But then again, I doubt Jeanette is waxing lyrical to her literary friends about this podcast either. Ian Christopher Priddle was 45 years old. Nothing in his life had been extraordinary and he lived a very straightforward life in a village near Accrington. He wasn't a man for adventure of any description. No exciting travels, projects or high aspirations to change the world. Or even dentists a little. He lived close to the print works where he worked as a supervisor with his wife. When after being married for almost 20 years, he found out that his wife had betrayed him by having an affair. Ian was devastated. For Ian Priddle, the future didn't look bright. His job was stable and okay, but it didn't pay particularly well. And the future was looking pretty bleak, including having to move in with his mum following the breakup of his marriage. Not an especially enticing prospect, anyone over 40 I think. 
But then everything changed when he met someone and fell head over heels in love. This was different to anything he'd known before, and he felt so alive when he was with her. What was surprising about the situation is that the attractive 21-year-old woman he felt so strongly about, Yasira Purvis, seemed to feel the same way about him too. Although less than half his age, she adored Ian. They knew each other through working at the same print works, but then a kiss during their smoking break led to a full-blown relationship. And Ian Priddle was absolutely obsessed with his younger lover. This felt very new, glamorous, and different to his more mundane life with his wife, and he whisked her off to hotels in Manchester, Blackpool, and further afield for evenings of fun and nights of passion. Nothing was too much for her, and he even spent £5,500 buying her a Ford Cougar car. Yazira wasn't very keen on her work, and she struggled with the strict routine of her print works, where start and finish times and when you could take a break were heavily regulated. She especially struggled to get to work on time, and after a number of warnings she was actually asked to leave her job. Ian couldn't bear to see Yazira unhappy, and he stepped in to help. Using his savings, he bought her a business, a happy shopper shop, in nearby Blackburn, installing Yazira as manager to run the enterprise. Although Yazira did lead a very Western lifestyle, wearing non-traditional clothes, socialising and drinking alcohol, she was one of a family of eight sisters and four brothers and had been brought up a Muslim. And there was a real problem with their relationship. And this was that she was already married to her first cousin, Karim Mukhtar. Yazira's family had shown her a video of her husband-to-be and she was happy with the proposed match and flew to Pakistan to marry Karim. The ceremony took place in Karim's home village near Rawalpindi in May 2006. The happy couple stayed together for a month before Yazira returned back to England and to her home in Accrington. Meanwhile, her new husband, who did not have a visa to travel to the UK, remained in Pakistan. Yazira took on the burdensome job of dealing with the UK public services as she tried to facilitate her husband's visa, which, as with anything involving dealing with UK government agencies, as you know, it's just so painful, it's enough to make you lose the will to live. The visa application that she was completing is especially tricky, and Yazira had to provide details of her husband's proposed living arrangements, family background and employment plans. It took a long time. And while she was doing this, she continued to speak regularly to her husband on the phone as they planned their future life together. Due to the fact that Yazira was married, the affair with Ian Priddle had to remain secret with absolutely nobody finding out about it. But as the issuing of the visa came closer, Yazira realised that her life with Ian would have to stop when her husband and his mum arrived in Lancashire from Pakistan. As for Ian, he was distraught at the prospect of losing this happiness he had found and he would do whatever it took to stay with his girlfriend and to go on enjoying this new life. And so the pair decided on a plan that would stop her husband coming to the UK. In December 2006, the couple planned a trip to Pakistan, leaving the UK on Christmas Eve. Yazira Purvis and Ian Priddle purchased return flights to Islamabad, but oddly they had no itinerary and no hotel booked when they got there. Neither told their immediate families where they were going, or that they were going together. 
Priddle simply told his mother, with whom he now lived, that he was going away for Christmas. And Purvis clearly made no mention of Priddle to her mum, whom she told that she was going to Paris with girlfriends. And there was a very good reason why their trip was so secretive. Not just because they were having an affair, but the aim of their time in Pakistan was to remove permanently the issue of her husband by murdering him. The pair jetted off and didn't do too much until the day before they were due to return, the 30th of December 2006, when Purvis contacted her husband using a mobile phone with a Pakistani SIM card. She asked to meet him in Rawalpindi, saying she'd just arrived in the neighbouring city of Islamabad as a surprise for him, and he was understandably delighted. He bought and dressed in new clothes and travelled to Rawalpindi. He was so excited to see his wife and to spend some time alone. After all, it had been a while since they'd spent any time together. Pevers didn't book the most salubrious of locations for this rendezvous. This wasn't petals on the bed and champagne. Instead, it was room 109 of the Comfort Inn Hotel, a basement hotel where rooms can be booked by the hour. But her husband didn't care. He couldn't wait to see his wife again and he anxiously counted the minutes until they would be reunited. Karam Mukhtar arrived at the hotel first and a member of staff at the hotel saw a young Asian woman and an older white man go to the room after him. This was Purvis and Priddle. It was also the last time that 21-year-old Karam was seen alive. The same worker who'd seen them earlier had to leave to run an errand but he later spotted the same two people he'd earlier seen, this time running away from the room. He went to investigate and saw that the door to the room was open, and when he went inside, he saw a man, Kuram Mukhtar, lying partly on the bed and partly on the floor, covered in blood and clearly badly injured. The hotel worker called the emergency services, and along with the manager of the hotel, they rushed him to the hospital that was only a short distance away. In the car, Kuram was breathing, but it was laboured. It was clear that he really wasn't very well at all. The traffic was bad, and it took over 20 minutes to reach the hospital. During the journey, the two men reassured Kuram, but he did not respond to them, and tragically, he was pronounced dead shortly after arriving at the hospital. At the post-mortem, it was discovered he'd been stabbed twice with a 7-inch butcher's knife in room 109 of the Comfort Inn Hotel. Doctors found he had suffered two stab wounds, cuts to his hands and a perforated lung, stomach and liver. There was evidence that he had fought hard for his life, as there were numerous cuts on both his hands caused by the weapon used to kill him. The actual cause of death was due to the shock caused by loss of blood. Straight after the stabbing, Pervez and Priddle began their plans for an alibi. They went back to their hotel, the Four Seasons in Islamabad, and began a conversation with several members of staff. They asked if they could visit the home village of the staff, and they all went along there for the evening. Pervez and Priddle spent the night at a small village outside the capital with several members of staff, before getting a taxi back to the hotel. In the early hours of the next morning, they took another taxi to the airport, and then at 4am they caught the Pakistani International Airlines flight back to Manchester. As police investigations began in Rawalpindi, suspicion immediately fell on Perez. Contact was made by detectives in Pakistan with the British authorities 
and Pelvis and Priddle were arrested before they left the airport. Contact was made by detectives in Pakistan with the British authorities and Pervis and Priddle were arrested before they left the Manchester airport. As they approached immigration control at Manchester on New Year's Eve, they were met by detectives who told them they were arresting them on suspicion of murder. Pervis coolly asked, what murder? While Priddle appealed to be genuinely shocked, saying more to himself than anyone else, I've never been arrested before. But through questioning, the couple stuck to their alibi about they were visiting a local village with staff from the hotel when the murder took place. But detectives were confident that the timings didn't work and this story wouldn't stand up in court. Their investigation was a long and difficult one, with Manchester police travelling to Pakistan to speak to some witnesses and others providing evidence via a video link. Thus the couple's story was fast losing credibility and it was clear they were lying, it was Purvis who cracked first. She finally confessed to being present at the killing, but claimed that she was in fact trying to prevent Priddle from carrying out the attack on her husband. Detectives weren't convinced. And as for Priddle, he had argued he wanted to visit India to gain a greater cultural understanding of Purvis's background and upbringing, but detectives weren't buying that either. Whereas Purvis was happy to implicate Priddle, despite what had happened he was still deeply in love with Purvis. And like a lovesick teenager, he couldn't stop communicating with his girlfriend to share his feelings and he would clearly have done anything to make her happy. Detectives were certain that this included murdering her husband. Priddle had sent Preves a number of text messages on their return from Pakistan, which he would later deny in court. One said, Remember the dreams and just hold on. Another read, I've never felt alone so much as I do now. But more chillingly, Another text said, I didn't mean to kill him. Will you ever forgive me, Yaz? I love you, babes. Police were never able to get Priddle to admit the trip to Pakistan had been anything more than a holiday. Like Theresa May at a general election, he continued to trot out the same line, saying that he'd wanted to find out more about his girlfriend's culture and traditions if they were going to be building that future together. And key to gaining a conviction were two letters of confession, seemingly signed by Priddle. The documents were given to police by lawyers acting for Purvis. Priddle denied any knowledge of them until after the trial had actually started, and then he dramatically changed his story. But again, this was when it was clear that his story was unravelling, after a handwriting expert said she believed he had written them, after comparing them with examples of his writing, including a message on a Christmas card. Giving evidence in the witness box, he first said that Purvis had asked him to write them as she'd been asked to leave home by her parents and was living rough in her car. He said she begged him to do this, as by doing so he'd help her to make up with her family again. Priddle claimed he wrote the first letter in a pub in Blackburn, where he'd arranged to meet Purvis while the lengthy police investigation was still underway. Then Purvis contacted him again, saying she needed more details so he wrote another longer letter a few days later. To give you a flavour, in one letter he wrote, What happened was horrible, but Purvis had nothing to do with it. I did this bad thing on my own, may God forgive me. In the second he said, I was the one who murdered Karam Mukhtar, I was the one who stabbed him. But although he confessed to writing them, 
He said the content was dictated to him by Purvis and that he hadn't signed either of them. But after denying the letters for so long, he suddenly changed his account again. This time he said that Purvis had told him she was pregnant and that if he wrote the confession letters she would have his baby, set up home and wait for him. If not, she would kill their unborn child. During the trial at Manchester Crown Court, Anthony Cross QC, acting for Purvis, said that Prittle had been forced to admit authorship of the letters, but even then had not done so until after the trial jury had been sworn. But he added, To suggest that someone is capable of this sort of blackmail is a suggestion of real malice. It would be blackmail of the worst kind. It's not true, but it is an example of the lengths to which he would go and an example of his infatuation for Yaziro Pervez. He suggested the brutal murder had been spontaneous and wholly unplanned. What sort of man could do such a thing, he asked the jury. A man insanely jealous, acting quite irrationally, someone capable of great evil, but also of great normality. Someone like Ian Priddle. One witness from the Four Seasons of Alplindi, who was part of the couple's planned alibi, claimed that when they went to his village, Priddle was quiet and he smoked heavily. The couple was said to have barely touched a meal that was prepared for them. But Priddle said this wasn't as he had just killed a man, but he was subdued because he did not understand where they were going, as the excursion had been planned by his girlfriend. And questioned further, he repeatedly denied any involvement in the murder. The court also heard he'd explained two wounds, found on his hands when he was examined by a police surgeon after his arrest, and blood on his clothing, saying that they must have been caused either while he was lifting suitcases out of taxis, or from a slight paper cut. The jury didn't believe the couple, and 22-year-old Yazira Pervez and 46-year-old Ian Priddle were found guilty of murder, and told they would each serve a total of 20 years in prison, for killing 21-year-old Koran Mukhtar. Sentencing them, Judge David Clark said, This was clearly a plan to murder. You travelled to Pakistan under the guise of a holiday, but in reality it was a journey to get rid of Yazira Purvez's husband once and for all. Whether or not it is true that you, Yazira Purvez, were originally happy and content to be married to this young and unsophisticated boy may never be known but I am satisfied that it quite soon became a problem and an inconvenience to you, which you were determined to remove. He said, I am satisfied that you used the Priddle, who became infatuated with you to carry out that deed. It was planned in such a way that you both believed it would never come to light. The evidence against you both was overwhelming, and some of the arguments advanced by you in your defence just bordered on desperation. In a victim impact statement, Karam's mother, Azra Bibi, explained that he was her only child, saying, I visit his grave every single day and I weep a lot. Curran was a very young man and his whole life stretched ahead of him. He never hurt anyone. He was so excited to join his wife in the UK. He was the only man in the family and after him there was no one to carry the family name. He was my whole life and support and he was the only hope and reason I was living for. His death has affected my health and it is very difficult for me, as there is no one left to look after me now. I have nightmares about what happened to my son, and how he met his death. She told how after her son married Yazira Pervez, the couple stayed at her home for about a month, and she looked after Yazira like her own daughter, adding, 
I feel cheated and I feel betrayed by her. Adrian Dugdale of the Crown Prosecution Service said, This conviction is the result of hard work and cooperation between the authorities in the UK and in Pakistan. Both Pervers and Priddle thought they could get away with murder. We have seen that this is not so. True justice knows no boundaries. And after the case, Detective Sergeant Brian Hoy, who worked on the investigation, said, Karan Mukhtar was a young man who was filled with excitement at the prospect of starting a new life in England with his wife. He'd even bought new clothes for their secret meeting, truly believing that she cared for him when all the time she and her lover were plotting to kill him. Yazira Pervez chose to take part in this marriage. If she had changed her mind, then she could easily have stopped Kurum coming to the UK. But she took advantage of his trust, and with help from Priddle, she murdered him. Interestingly, after Pervez was found guilty, the Manchester Evening News newspaper, an excellent source of facts for all my research in this region, published an amazing article detailing that just a week before her conviction, her brother, Imran Pervez, 27, was described as a dangerous sexual predator after he admitted raping a 12-year-old girl in a car parked in an Accrington alleyway. Another of her brothers, Nazan Pervez, aged 30, was jailed for three years and two months in August 2006 after supplying an undercover police officer with wraps of heroin and crack cocaine. His accomplice and brother, Nasser Pervez, 29, also pleaded guilty to seven counts of supplying heroin and crack cocaine and was jailed for two years and eight months. And the youngest Pervez brother, Shafazal, aged 21, terrorised and bit a middle-aged woman as she walked to work. He eventually received a three-year community order for sexual assault, which he broke when he flouted a judge's order to attend a hospital appointment to get treatment for TB so as not to be a danger to the community. He was then sentenced to six months in prison and ordered to sign the sex offenders register for five years. Their 49-year-old father, Mohammed, was also sent to prison for five years in March 2006 after he was found with drugs worth up to £44,000, including a half kilo stash of heroin. Pretty astonishing, huh? One of their neighbours was quoted saying, It's really difficult to believe one family can be so evil. Every time their name is mentioned, it's something bad. Everyone knows they've been mixed up in drugs and other nasty crimes. The mother of the family is rarely seen, and she only uses the back door. Another said, The family have done some horrible things, and when there was any trouble in the area, it's down to them. With everything that has gone on, I don't think anyone in this street would be sad to see them move. This family are a real bad bunch, and it's terrible they are tarnishing the names of all the hard-working, nice people who also live in this street. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Ian Priddle isn't the first middle-aged man to lose everything after falling for a much younger, pretty woman, and he certainly won't be the last. But what I do find odd in this case is why Preves didn't just find an excuse for her husband not to join her, or just to end the marriage. I appreciate that in some communities, this is a difficult thing to do, but surely it was still possible and far superior than the path she took. As we've seen a number of times on this podcast, intense, passionate love can cloud the judgment of the most seemingly sensible person and cause them to react in the most unexpected ways. I wonder how 
as you listen to this podcast. They both feel about their crime as they languish in their prison cells, and if they regret their actions, and the needless murder of a young, innocent man with everything to live for. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please come and join the conversation on Facebook, not just about this episode, but all aspects of UK True Crime, you'll be very welcome. And to support the show and enable me to keep producing a weekly podcast, please head to patreon.com forward slash UK True Crime, where you can access 15 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content. So that's all from me for now. So until we speak again next week, I'm off to sit in a dark room and admire my royal wedding mug and spoon collection. Cheerio.